Welcome back to the BGS English Department podcast on Othello for Year 11. Um, we are looking at um, another question for your Shakespeare. You've got 45 minutes, remember, to write on this. And we're looking at Act 2, Scene 1. And if you haven't read the extract, then pause the podcast now and read the extract. And we're doing the extract question. And I'm here too, Miss Yemenakis. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I should introduce myself. I'm Mr. Biddle. Um, uh, and if I could ask Ms. Yemenakis to just start us off by reading the thesis statement for us. This is where we're going to try and um, chart our course through the extract. What, are we really, what do we think this is really saying of importance? And perhaps also set out the two or three areas we're going to cover. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just to add to what Mr. Biddle said earlier um, about the extract, there's um, at the bottom of the podcast, there is a download of the sheet that has the extract, the question and lots of really, really useful detailed notes that you can go and have a look at too. So, um, okay, so the question for this extract from Act 2, Scene 1 is, um, how does Shakespeare make this a revealing moment in the play? Um, do watch out for this, because every year somebody in the mock answers the whole text question whilst actually looking at the passage, and you really don't want to do that. And they put it at the bottom, which is slightly annoying, but there's one directly under the extract. So... Um, here it is. Shakespeare uses this passage to reveal more about the complicated malignity of Iago and the range of his manipulative ability. At the point that this dialogue occurs, Iago is in the process of recasting the formal public exchange of courtesies between Desdemona and Cassio on her arrival at Cyprus as something worthy of suspicion and a weapon in his plots against Othello. This is a particularly revealing moment in the play in three principal ways. Firstly, in what Shakespeare reveals to the audience about Iago's character through his language, Secondly, in what Iago reveals about himself and his motivation. And thirdly, in its depiction of power and manipulation. OK, so we've got a bit of a sense of what we're trying to say about Iago in this passage. Clearly, it's dominated by one character. That's the first thing to look at. Um, there's no balance here. Most of the lines are Iago's, so most of our answer is going to be about Iago with a little bit on how he is interacting with Rodrigo. I think it's probably also worth saying, isn't it, that this is quite early on in the play. They've only just got to Cyprus, so as an audience we're still kind of learning how Iago um, functions. And also that it's one of those, you'll notice, um, if you've read the play carefully, that you often get the Iago and Rodrigo um, scenes at the end of a longer scene. That often seems to be where they end up, so there's a kind of pattern there. There is, and, and the patterning of the Iago-Rodrigo um, scenes is important. Um, it's one where we see Iago often... Um, with less of a mask to the audience, even some of his soliloquies feel masked. And um, whereas some of his instructions, he almost doesn't bother. He's sufficiently uh, lacking in, in interest in what Rodrigo thinks that he often says things which reveal his character. So that's what going to be one of the things that we yeah. talk about. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to the Act One, Scene One podcast, um, we talk quite a lot about the relationship between Iago and Rodrigo, and it's exactly as Mister Biddle says. He does. He does. It, R Rodrigo is such a gull, such an idiot, that he almost doesn't have to perform in front of him. And so you do, yeah, he does reveal some quite interesting things there. Mm. And structurally, uh, of course, the play opens with the two of them talking about these kinds of things, Iago's feelings about Othello, and this is a development from that, really. So you could, structurally speaking, you could recall that, look back at that and, and see what's developed from the beginning of the play to this point at the start of Act 2. So if we start by considering what we think this passage says about um, Iago's character, and if we start with the one that perhaps is most uh, transferable, the point that might be most found elsewhere, and frankly almost any 
passage on Iago, you could talk about this. So the way in which he transforms things, he takes innocent, natural thoughts, um, abstracts, and makes them ugly, base, and often concrete. So look out for how his language renders things physical. He physicalizes them until they've become kind of ugly and base. And that's a kind of he, he says that about language. Desdemona, doesn't he? I can't remember exactly where it is. He says he'll turn her virtue into pitch, and it's exactly that. Anything that is good and innocent and beautiful, he feels the need to besmirch it immediately and turn it into something hideous. I think it's interesting, isn't it, the opening word in this extract is lechery, which I think sets the tone. I mean, I know it's not a whole scene, and it's just part of the scene, but I think that, that tells us something about Iago in this um, moment, doesn't it? It's a good moment to remind you as well that because you've got the text in the exam... Um, really important to have opened up and looked because in this passage it's a, it's a word which he's picking up and is in immediate contrast to a word that Rodrigo has just used. Um, it's not a killer if you don't notice that but it, it's very helpful if you do so always good just to turn to that bit in your text and look and see what's gone just before because in this case um, the, that word lechery um, central to everything that Iago is trying to implant into the relationships around him perhaps, we'll talk more about this, arising from something kind of um, ambivalent within himself, but it's responding to a perfectly innocent word that Rodrigo has used to describe um, Desdemona, um, which is courtesy. So you can already see the beginning of that development in language that Iago takes things and transforms them. So yeah. he takes Rodrigo's courtesy and it becomes lechery. And he's done it earlier, actually, in that scene, hasn't he, with Cassio, where he's trying to get Cassio to talk about Desdemona in a particular kind of way, which Cassio completely refuses to do and just kind of parries him by saying, you know, she's a gentle lady or a virtuous lady or whatever it is. Um, yeah. And that development continues, really. So we get lechery and then it, it gradually becomes a bit more physical, a bit more grounded in the real world with martial way. And then eventually it's become this transformed, intimate, physical image of incorporate conclusion. I mean, itself a, a strangely formal phrasing for what he's describing. Um, we'll perhaps say more about that. Yeah, and that, that phrase in that first um, speech, you know, they met so near with their lips that their breaths embraced together, which could, in another world, another play, said by another person, be a positive thing. But in Iago's mouth, it's, it's seen as something disgusting, isn't it? And, and repulsive in some kind of way. Also good to notice that he's speaking in prose at this point, so that's often a sign that he's um, improvising, he's speaking his thoughts, they're not formulated fully. And again, he often is using prose when he's talking to Rodrigo, uh, um, yeah. a private scene in which he's, he's uh, dropping the, the mask of his artifice. So, um, I mean, as ever with the Rodrigo-Iago bits as well, um, you can see at the beginning that Rodrigo doesn't really say very much. Most, that's, that's true of a lot of Iago and other character scenes, isn't it? Iago does all the running and the other characters don't really respond um, very much too. Mm. So in terms of the dynamics of the extract, um, that's something to think about um, as well. Um, it's a challenge actually for you when you're writing about an extract with just the two of them, where Rodrigo is, is almost monosyllabic, um, because he's so easily manipulated that it's almost as if that's quite a hard thing to write about in, in this extract. But what you can say is that it, it is almost like a proving ground, it's a foreshadowing of, of the way in which he will use more sophisticated techniques to um, manipulate a fellow, um, arguably still pretty easily manipulated. Yeah, it's less direct, isn't it? When he's, mm. when he's talking to a fellow and manipulating a fellow, there's a lot of echoing 
um, and the language is more connected, whereas here it feels like it's more mm. like Iago talking and Rodrigo's just there, really, isn't he? He's not mm. really responding. When he says, well, is the first mm. thing that he says, mm. and I will do this if I can bring it to any opportunity and adieu are the only things he says, which are not really um, particularly significant in the context of this scene. Mm. I mean, in terms of the language, um, and the revelations about Iago's character. I mean, as you say, we have that at the beginning in Act 1, Scene 1, don't we, right from the very beginning. So that sense of, um, you know, the things that he calls Othello, the Black Ram and so on, and the language that he uses to rouse Brabantio. And we're, here he, it feels like more like he's talking to himself. So it's quite interesting that that same language still, it's not purely for effect. I think it's what you were saying. There's a suggestion that the way in which he talks about love and sex tells us a lot about him for a character who is actually ultimately not ever really explaining his motivation to us i think we can learn quite a lot about the way he sees the world i think we can and there's the fact that the the scene begins with them recasting something they have observed he's he's so frequently in the play in the position of an outsider and observer and we often focus on othello as the outsider the alterity of othello in relation to venice um and yet actually in many ways iago fills a kind of a parallel role and as an outsider and he's he, he's both welcomed but not as his full self he's almost there's a sense i i feel with this play that he's he's perhaps alien to his own motivations he's not yes. always completely sure why he responds and if i that that phrase incorporate conclusion um is such a strangely formal and distanced way to talk about what he's trying to get at which is you know sex and yet he's distancing himself and and his exclamation that follows it of Pish, almost suggests that even talking about it is something that he finds finds yeah. distasteful. I, I think when you know what you're saying about the motivation. I mean, at the end of the play, famously, he refuses to speak. He says, "I'm not. I'm not going to talk about it." Um, and you wonder whether that's actually because he is ca incapable of articulating. I mean, there's been a lot written. And you don't need to worry about this too much for GCSE about you know why Argo behaves the way he does. He gives us some concrete reasons. He didn't get given um, the job that he wanted. Cassio got it instead, and Cassio is far less um, experienced. And I think you know some critics would say actually that's quite a big deal, but I don't think it's enough really, is it? So, you know, you wonder whether part of what we're getting from the language mm. in this extract is a really strong feeling of self revulsion as well. Um, that kind of contaminates everything it sees. I think so very much, and and he's both he's both fascinated by and also revolted by the idea of sex you know, and watching others being intimate and being close. So there is an excitement early on in the way he describes it. I think that's worth commenting on. You could talk about it as relish or excitement. There's a kind of wireism to it if you if you can see how to. How to talk about that. Um, which, I, which is why I have slight issues with, I'm sure a lot of you have watched the film version with Lawrence Fishburne, um, which has that scene, which is very much um, Kenneth Branagh, the director's idea, in that scene with Amelia, where he effectively rapes her. Um, and I've, I've never been entirely convinced that that really kind of works. I think it, I think Iago's misogyny is so much there in his language that you, you don't really need that. Um, no. Shall we move to talk yes. about... Um, his motivation, then yes. we, this is where we're, we're imagining our essay might go on, because in the second half of this extract, he gives another of his little set-piece explanations. So it's a soliloquy, and he's talking very explicitly about his motivation here. But what's fascinating is that it is not consistent, if we were putting Iago on trial, we would be noting his inconsistencies. Because here... He is not, in fact, focusing on his kind of professional reverse that he suffered at the hands of Cassio, which makes some sense, even if it's not 
perhaps sufficient reason for what he goes on to do. Um, here, it's all about him being a cuckold or him, yeah. the lusty moor hath leaped into my seat. Which he did mention in the previous soliloquy, didn't he, he? Even though he says that he doesn't really have any evidence. Exactly. So in the previous soliloquy, when he first raises this idea, it's much, much more speculative in his language. He immediately, the next phrase is, but I, I know not if it be true. Yeah. Whereas here, he's suddenly saying it's something which has... The thought whereof doth, like a poisonous mineral, gnaw my innards. That's really powerful visceral language. It is. And that's what happens to Othello later on, isn't it? But I, I'm never convinced in this speech that Iago really feels that. And if you agree with Miss Yamanakis and you want to talk about that in your exam, it would be good to note that he's moved back into a kind of much more publicly aware verse form here. Yeah. So it really does kind of add to that sense that he is... He's really kind of playing a role at this point. It's, it's as if he's he's writing the speech of his motivation and is creating it rather than feeling it. And we see as well that, you know, that Machiavellian thing that he has, is that he knows the weaknesses of his own, you know, of, of the other characters. So the positive things about Othello, constantly loving Noble, are going to be turned against him. They're seen as weaknesses, aren't they, by Iago? Which again, I think, reveals something about his own character, doesn't it? Um, there's also that thing, isn't there, where he um, says that he loves her as well, which just suddenly appears out of nowhere, um, which I think, um, I mean, it is the case that um, if you read, and there is a little thing in the back of your books on the story that Shakespeare basically stole this from, which is what he did with all his stories, that in the original, actually, that was Iago's main motivation, was that he was in love with Desdemona, which Shakespeare changed because it's a bit obvious and it's, this makes Iago a lot more interesting. So you wonder whether that's a kind of hangover from that or whether he's just like plucking in the air to find reasons to build his case against Othello. I don't know, what do you think? Well, I think that the problem for, uh, if I'm in year 11, the problem is how do I write about this? <laughs> yes. um, Good point. And, and I think phrases like Shakespeare problematises or Shakespeare, um, Iago's characterization resists simple interpretation yes. phrases like that will help you and you need to sort of welcome that ambiguity because it's something you can write about and it's interesting and it's immediately nuanced and subtle so don't fight shy of it because you feel there isn't a clear answer to it do you talk about the ambiguity yeah and like you said at the beginning he's not really aiming to be consistent is he he's kind of you know when we see him in these soliloquies he's kind of thinking out loud and kind of you know playing around almost with the different ideas trying to work out what fits and what doesn't and if you're getting into the details of that then um, look at the line towards the end of the extract where he says almost as an afterthought for I fear Cassio with my nightcap too so what on earth does that mean well I think it really means that he's uh, imagining himself at night so in the, in this sleeping position so he's afraid of Cassio sleeping with his wife as well and it feels like such a strange afterthought it's come out of nowhere there's no evidence for it there's been no trail of motivation in his own thinking about that aspect of it um, and also yet, seems unlikely because it means as, it's quite a lot hugely older. unlikely. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> so it, all of which just adds to the sense that there's an unreliability about this narrative that he's yeah. creating. Although he does sort of acknowledge that at the end, doesn't he? he says, "Tis here, but yet confused." Mm. He, he, mm. you know, mm. it's partly confused because he hasn't kind of pulled together the plan yet, and I think it's also partly confused because he genuinely can't differentiate between his feelings and his plan, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, there's also that sense of enjoyment, I think, whenever you're writing about Iago, that it isn't just the plotting and the planning, but there's a sense of mm. huge pleasure at the havoc that he's going to wreak 
He's going to make them all thank me, love me and reward me for making him egregiously an ass and practicing upon his peace and quiet even to madness. I mean, even from the beginning of Act Two, he's foreshadowing what exactly does happen later on, isn't he? Mm. I think there is that sense that he's quite excited about that. Um, and I think that's one of the most interesting things you can look out for in Iago's language anywhere, is this contrast between the moments where he's being very carefully thought out. It's something that he says earlier in the play, I forget the quotation, but he does say that he, he prizes reason and cold thinking above um, hot um, emotion. But the moments where in his speech Shakespeare has him sort of break out with excitement almost, you hear it, that it is a really interesting tension in, in his language and his characterization. that I think you can look for wherever you are in the play. Um, shall we move to talk about the skill in his manipulation yeah. and the way in which he's influencing Rodrigo yeah. here I mean, elsewhere. that honestly is something it's highly unlikely you're going to have an extract where that doesn't come into play unless you get the willow scene or something like that yeah well all of this stuff really about Iago's character yeah. and his language hopefully is applicable to, to most scenes that you might get so this is an important scene um, it's drawing on some of the characterization, his manipulation that he's he's employed elsewhere. He's a Machiavellian character. Um, um, do you want to say a little bit about the Machiavellian side of it that we yeah, see Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just a... You know, one of the things I've noticed in the recent essays from my year 11s, and I think it is worth thinking about, is that we're, you know, we don't need to swallow a dictionary, but actually sometimes a more sophisticated vocabulary actually does allow you to have slightly more sophisticated ideas. And, and Machiavellian incorporates within that one word lots of things. Um, it has a kind of historical precedent of, you know, characters who are seeking power. But I think particularly importantly for Iago, it has that balance of um, the ability to kind of think on your feet and use other characters' weaknesses, but to change your plans as well. I mean, there, there are times, particularly later on in the play in Act 4, where really Iago's plans kind of hang by a thread and they are pretty chaotic. And he doesn't, he doesn't lose his cool when that happens, does he? He kind of just keeps going and he uses the thing. He didn't know that the ha he was going to get hold of the handkerchief. He does. He uses that to great effect. So um, I think really that, that notion of a Machiavellian character is one who is ultimately seeking power on it in, in Iago's case it's sort of more kind of power in terms of power over the fellow and the ultimate destruction and that ability to know the weaknesses of his enemies and to kind of you know think on his feet which we see through all his soliloquies that's what his soliloquies give us is that kind of like you said earlier you know that thought about a fellow sleeping with Amelia has become more concrete from the first soliloquy to this one and each time we have a soliloquy something slightly different is happening mm. um, so I think that kind of Machiavellian um, thing is a really important one to um, think mm. about and to use in your essays and a feature of that often is also the ability to keep your enemies close too and that's that's something which Shakespeare's exploring here yeah. um, both both and the fact that everyone calls Iago honest the whole way through the play yeah. until right right at the end when it's yeah. um, far too late and in terms of Iago's antecedents if you're you're writing about that it's not only Machiavel figure it's uh, the vice figure from medieval morality plays that, that Shakespeare's drawing on in in his presentation of Iago and and um, what you're looking for there is a figure who would talk directly to the audience um, establishing a more conspiratorial relationship and often with a kind of transgressive humor um, so where we see that both here and also um, elsewhere and particularly in his soliloquies a kind of relish um, a transgressive humor then you're you're also looking back to 
the vice figure. Yeah. And also with the vice figure, it, you know, it didn't have to be a fully rounded human being. It was just a representation mm. of a vice. So um, there are definitely elements, mm. maybe the missing bits of Iago mm. are kind of part mm. of that. Yes, perhaps relics um, of, of that. Yeah, yeah true. Um, in terms of the way he manipulates characters, the tools that he has, if we just look briefly at his language in this extract, um, he's very, he's a master of um, understanding someone else's character and using it against them. So if you, an example here would be, so Rodrigo, um, the Venetian, Venice renowned for its trade, a very prosperous, um, um, very prosperous place, um, very well aware of the value of money. And, and so Iago, Iago's language controls and manipulates Cassio, I think, there um, in this prose that he, he speaks early on. And if you look at the transactional register that he adopts, I think that's profitable. So um, we've got words means, profitably and prosperity are all from the world of business. It's quite a masculine world. I think it appeals to Cassio's, uh, sorry, Rodrigo's identity and um, what he wants out of things. I think there's an irony in that as well, isn't there? Because we know that Rodrigo um, has been persuaded to come to um, Cyprus um, really far against his better judgment if he'd stopped and thought about it because Iago spends his whole time persuading him that he's about to kind of, you know, get him together with Desdemona, which we absolutely know is never going to happen. And Rodrigo should be pretty aware of that too. Um, and at the end of Act One, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he, he says he's going to go off and kind of sell all his lands, doesn't he, to, you know, get the money. So, you know, he's kept there by Rodrigo because he's useful financially and he's also useful for kind of, you know, Iago's plotting too. Um, mm. So the kind of the, the language of commodities and, and trade that you're talking about, mm. I think, is also, you know, there's a kind of level of irony there too. And a, a different example, but the same notion of of using language to manipulate, he's, he's stylistically extremely flexible. Um, and when he goes into a soliloquy at the end of our extract, um, look at the change so his language has become um, legal in quality it's become very objective and um so that first sentence that cassio loves her i do well believe it so it's absolutely balanced we've got six syllables and six syllables expressing that sense of judgment and careful rational balance and it begins in this uh, again legal frame by raising a hypothesis that cassio loves her and then issuing a judgment i do believe it and all of that is helping to build the sense that Iago is a, a character whose judgment we should trust, that he um, he sees things clearly. Uh, yeah. I think even if we don't trust him, I think one of the interesting mm. things about this play Well, we is don't, but that, uh, no, he, he would like but, us to. <laughs> but actually, it almost doesn't matter because we enjoy watching him. It's a mm. bit like with Richard and Richard III. He mm. is far more interesting to watch than any of the other characters in this play right from the beginning. And yes, Othello can speak beautiful, measured poetic verse, but actually it's a bit boring a lot of the time. It kind of feels like that mm. he's sort of, you know, read it from a book, this is how you talk. Whereas Iago is a master of language. As you say, he can, he can speak in so many different registers. Um, and he can use both verse and prose so flexibly that it makes him a hugely engaging character to watch, um, which causes attention, doesn't it, in the audience? Because we know he's doing terrible things. We'd rather watch him than Othello. And I think there are times almost, I don't know, not so much with Rodrigo, because anyone could outwit Rodrigo, but there are times with Othello where it makes it quite difficult to sympathise with Othello, because even though you know that he has no reason to um, mistrust um, Iago, you kind of feel he should almost. Mm. Um. Great. Well, there's a little more. If you're interested in uh, Iago's motivation and some other areas you might go, I've added a few 
more detailed notes um, to this passage. But um, um, if we just finish then with a, a, a hypothetical conclusion. Iago dominates the passage and the variety in his language and in the styles he adopts to suit his purposes, he is simultaneously absorbing and repellent, as befits such a manipulative character. This extract is most revealing in what it says or fails to say about Iago's motivation. Shakespeare depicts a character revelling in his virtuosic villainy, but at the same time offers no convincing interpretation of the origins of this destructive impulse. There is a sense that Iago is a character who is written to be in a perpetual state of alterity, alien to all around him, who see him as something he is not, the wise and dependable ancient, and ultimately a character whose motive, motives are alien even to himself.